Today's sermon text is from Deuteronomy 18, 15-19, which you can find on page 92-93 to in your paperback Bibles. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore unless I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up without a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require of him the word of the Lord. So I've never seen it before. But it seems like it's just about every week where a new high-profile male is being accused of uh, sexual immorality, sexual harassment. Um, and it's, I mean, it seems to be happening so frequently that we can't help but wonder who's next. Story after story of men using their power to force women or to manipulate them into inappropriate sexual conduct have been all around us. For many of us, it's alarming. Uh, for the rest of us, is, it's horrific. It's horrific. And just about every single time, it seems that we hear a collective gasp at the alarming news. I'm shocked. I'm stunned. I'm speechless. I need time to process things. My Facebook feed went crazy when the news broke out that Matt Lauer was released from the NBC network. My friend posted, Matt Lauer? Really? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Even Matt Lauer's ex-wife had this to say after hearing of his termination. I was shocked because he's been such a stalwart at the network and in that job. He's been the best person that's ever held that job, and I couldn't imagine that anything he would have done that would have been so out of character for him that would have caused that reaction. And I hear a shock. Oftentimes, we hear the shock of the culprits themselves. How could I do something so stupid? How could I be so careless? How could I become the sort of person that could do something so horrific? Maybe you've found yourself in that place before. Maybe you find yourself in that place now. Maybe during Thanksgiving, you lost your temper. You know, you, it's been a long while since your whole family's been together, and it's supposed to be great. But you blew up, you snapped at a fellow family member, you lost your temper, you yelled at your kids, you said some mean and nasty things to someone you love, and you can't take it back. And you ruin Thanksgiving, and you're wondering, why did I do that? Maybe you find yourself in a cycle of addiction, and things seem to be progressing okay, but you find yourself in a dark place, and you reach for the bottle, or you turn on the computer in the privacy of your own home, and you're wondering, why did I have to give in? 
Maybe you find yourself really stressed at work. Deadlines are coming up. And the expectations to meet your quotas or to reach your goals are so overwhelming. And it's just so easy to cut corners when no one's looking. Or you find that you prefer to work long hours so that you don't have to deal with the stress at home. And you're wondering, how did I get to this point? And many of these times, we're just shocked. We are horrified. Now, sometimes that often leaves us in a dark, dark place without hope. Today is the first Sunday of Advent. And when I think of the word Advent, I think of the word hope. I think of the word hope. That Christ has come. The longing of Christ. The very coming was supposed to bring us hope. The anticipation of this very Jesus, the coming of the true and greater prophet, priest, and king, the one who was to usher in a new humanity, that was meant to bring hope in our most horrific moments. We are starting a series today on the coming of the true and greater. The coming, coming and greater, true and greater prophet, priest, and king. A new humanity. Evan is supposed to be filled with hope. And today we read from Deuteronomy chapter 18, where we are in, the people of God are anticipating a true and greater prophet. Now, before we experience the hope that this Advent season is supposed to bring us, before we get there, we need to first look straight on at the horror of who we are. So, I want to ask two questions this morning. First, what is the horror of who we are? And then second, what is the hope of Advent? So, the horror of who we are, the hope of Advent. First, the horror and the hope. Second, or first, what is the horror of who we are? God's diagnosis of our moral condition is that it is horrific. It is horrific. In the book of Deuteronomy, the people of God are looking to enter into the promised land. And they are ratifying, they are formalizing a covenant that began with their fathers, with their parents, when Moses received the Ten Commandments. And they are needing to learn, this new generation has to learn from the mistakes of their parents. And so they are being reminded of the faithfulness, not only of the faithfulness of God who brought them and rescued them from Egypt, but they are also reminded and they are given an honest assessment of their own moral track record. God says, remember the time when I told you to go up and take the land that I was giving you? You did not go up. You rebelled against me, and you murmured in your heart. And this disobedience is well documented. Their disobedience was a pattern we see over and over and over again. And because of their wayward hearts, God has to provide and raise up for them prophets. First and foremost, God raises up a leader named Moses, and he would play the role of a prophet. Now, when we, in our day and age, we hear the word prophet, what do we think of? We think of someone who tells the future. Now, sometimes prophets told the future. Usually, uh, it, it was in reference to, if you keep living the way you do, you will see destruction. But prophets didn't always tell the future. Their main role was not to tell the future. Their main role was to tell the truth. 
It was to bring the words of God to the people, and most often, it was an honest assessment of their moral condition, for lack thereof. It was the job of the prophet to diagnose their horrific hearts and then to call them to repentance. As you might imagine, these prophets were not very well liked. It was not a coveted job. It was not a, it was not a job anybody wanted. I mean, have anybody, anybody of you gone uh, Black Friday shopping? Any of you guys do that? Now, I've gone you know, the day of or the day after Thanksgiving a couple times and uh, never again. <laughs> Unless I have, you know, the, the proper hockey equipment on and a really big, strong bodyguard type of person to come with me because it can get pretty brutal and nasty. Now, imagine it's your job and you work at Walmart or Target or Best Buy and you have been asked to step outside and to tell all the people in line who have been waiting there all night that you just ran out and you just sold out of the last giant 4K television or the, the new iPhone 10. I mean, that's not a message that you want to deliver. They're not going to like it. They're not going to like you. It's like, please, please, I'm just the messenger. Don't shoot the messenger. This is how the prophets of old must have felt when God would tap them and say, you're it. They always, the prophets always preferred to hand over the job to somebody else. They often ran. They, they, they were very bitter when they were asked to do something like this. Always. Because prophets were killed. They were often hunted, stoned, because they told the truth. And the truth of who we are really ain't all that pretty. Now, several years ago, the Wall Street Journal did a, an article on the top growing churches in America. And what they found was pretty, pretty amazing. The common denominator of all these churches is that they were very conscientious about not using the word sin. They were very, they were highly sensitive. They were very intentional to substitute that word for something more palatable. So they would say stuff like, you know, we're, we're sick, we're in need of help, we've got an issue. But to say that we have a sin problem, but to say that by nature we are objects of wrath, enemies of God, that we are dead in trespasses and sins, well, now, that, that's too much. That's unpalatable. God's diagnosis of our moral condition is horrific. Now, Reinhold Niebuhr said that doctrine, the doctrine of original sin, original sin doesn't mean the first sin, original sin says that we are not good people, we're not neutral people, but we're actually, by nature, bent the other way. The doctrine of original sin, he says, is the only verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. In other words, is the only doctrine of Christianity that can actually be proven by empirical evidence. 
Now, some of us can simply look at the greediness that happens on Black Friday. Others of us who are parents don't need to look any further than our own children. Now, what's behind the tantrum? Well, it's our gravitational pull. It's the natural impulse to want and have things done our way. Now, how many of you have ever met a child that you never had to teach how to share? How many of us found that just natural to come by? Now, I remember my kids, uh, I've got twins that are uh, going to be six soon. I remember watching them when they're about a year old, and they're just playing around. And I remember several times watching my daughter would covet a toy that my son Judah had. Karis would try to snatch it away from him. And after unsuccessful attempts, what she would then do is that she would approach another toy and make it seem like it was the most exciting thing ever. And like the greatest thing since sliced bread. And she would make sure that Judah was watching. As if to say, hey, Judah, check this toy out. And when it caught Judah's attention, she would hand him the decoy, and at that very instant, snatch the toy that she really wanted out of his hands. And they'd both be content. And, and when, I, when I looked at that, I, I, I would think, that's pretty clever. <laughs> you know, my, the twisted side of me wants to go, at a girl, you'll, you'll make it in life. <laughs> that's pretty clever. But it never failed to amaze Kendra and myself just how cunning and crafty and manipulative a one-year-old could be. And this is my sweet little Karis. Now, when we look at children, especially when they're our, our own, we think, oh, how cute, how innocent, how untainted. Now, what are we saying, what are we doing when we baptize our children? When we baptize our children, we are making the proclamation that even this very child, as cute as he may be, is in desperate need of a Savior. And he too, like the rest of us, is morally bankrupt and is in dire need of cleansing. Now, how do the, the prophets, how do they address our moral qualifications? They essentially say we have none. They say we have none. Now, there is an aberrant theology that says that we are good people or we're not that bad, that overestimates our qualifications or our abilities and our capacities, and it actually makes us think that we're good people or, or better off than others. We think, I would never do what Matt Lauer was accused of. And this is exactly what the prophets are getting at. We are not good people. We are not good people. There is no one righteous, not a single one. Amen. We were going through the Ten Commandments, and if we were hearing them properly, if we were hearing them like the way they were meant to be heard, if we were not watering them down, we would realize we're not doing well. We wouldn't be thinking, we're keeping them. We would see that we are not keeping a single one. We are murderers. We are adulterers. We're not doing well. 
do we truly see that we are not good people who just have had bad days? Or we're off? And does a deviation from the norm? Or we're, we just have bad mommies? Do we truly see that without God's restraining grace, that we are fully capable of doing the most horrific crime? God's assessment, his diagnosis of our moral condition is horrific. And if we're honest and if we're hearing what the Bible says about us, we would realize we're worse off than we thought we were. It's horrific. (laughs) So what is the hope of Advent? What is the hope of Advent? Where's the hope? I mean, you might have come today because it's Advent season and Christmas is coming around the corner. And you're thinking, this is exactly why I don't like coming to church because they're always telling me what's wrong with me. It's making me feel bad about myself, and and quite frankly, I don't need any help with that. I don't need help with that. Shouldn't we tone it down a little? Shouldn't, Shouldn't we soften it up, at least for the holidays? But if the job of a doctor, a physician, is to diagnose our physical condition, it is the job of a prophet to diagnose our moral condition. And if we're going to get better, no matter how repugnant the diagnosis may be, we need to hear the truth. Now, if I ended the sermon here, this would go down as the worst sermon ever. Now, have you ever received a diagnosis or you or a loved one ever received a severe medical diagnosis? Have you? What did we need in that very moment? Perhaps what we were needing and wanting most in that moment was for someone to come alongside us, was for someone with an, who can give us understanding, someone with a plan, someone who is able to show the way forward and lead us through it. In those very moments, what we're looking for is a mediator. Now, in the passage that was read to us today, we find that the the people of God are looking for that very thing, and God provides it. Deuteronomy 18, 15 and following. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. Now when God displayed himself at Sinai, the people were so terrified, and they didn't want to be destroyed. And so they asked Moses, and they wanted Moses to play the role of a mediator. And what was God's response? What did God give? He gave a promise. And the promise he gave was another like Moses. Verse 17. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers 
I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Years later, another like Moses would come, and he would play the role of a mediator. But he would come as a true and greater prophet. Moses would come delivering and speaking the words of God, appealing to the authority of another, but he would be different. Moses said, thus saith the Lord, but he would say, truly, truly, I say unto you. Moses would bring the law of God to the people, but he would fulfill the law for the people. He would mediate by telling people what God required of them. Moses brought the law showing the people of God what was required of them. But this one, this prophet, mediated by the shedding of his own blood. Moses brought the words of God, but he himself was the very word of God. He was the word of God himself. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he came all the way down. Do you see why we need this true and greater prophet? Why it was necessary for him to come all the way down? Do you see why another prophet, another Moses, another Elijah, another teacher, another instructor, another founder, another example, another teaching, another philosophy would not cut it? Do you see why a true and greater prophet was so necessary? It's because we are so morally bankrupt that it would take nothing less than the horrific death of the innocent Son of God to make things right. You see, the hope of Advent is that we are not only given a a horrific diagnosis, but we are also provided a hopeful remedy. And when we accept our horrific condition, then we are free to accept our hope in the gospel and accepting what he says about us. Accepting God's diagnosis is the most liberating thing. How so? Sounds like bad news to me. It's the most liberating thing. Now, how does accepting God's diagnosis liberate us? How does accepting God's diagnosis liberate us? First, we would be free to come out of hiding. We would be free to come out of hiding. We can come out with our eating disorders, our sexual addictions, or the fact that we've got lots of questions about the Bible. There's nothing so shocking that God doesn't know already. And we can embrace the truth that we are needy every day rather than being being embarrassed by it. We can come out of hiding. How does accepting God's diagnosis liberate us? First, we would be free to come out of hiding. Second, we would be free from judging others. We would be free from judging others. We understand that the ground truly is level. And whatever we're using to promote ourselves or to look down on others, whether it be our class, gender, sexuality, race, or morality, any of it, it's got no basis. 
We see that we have nothing in, in and of ourselves. We've got nothing in us to attract God towards us. And so we see that we don't have a leg up on anybody. We are no longer shocked or appalled by anybody else. And we can stop pointing the finger because when we look at our own hearts, we see that we've got enough to worry about. We are free from judging others. So how does accepting God's diagnosis liberate us? First, we would be free to come out of hiding. Second, we would be free from judging others. Third, we would be free from con condemning voices. We would be free from condemning voices if we, all, if we knew that all we had to offer was our need, that we would be able to freely see and accept and rest in and live by and delight in and hold on to and trust the righteousness of another. If we see that all we had was our need, that we can find rest in the fact that the only thing that God accepts is what Jesus has already done in our place. Now, we would also be free from the snarls and the, the con condemnations that we hear elsewhere whether it's from our parents or a sibling or some internal voice, a tape recorder that plays in your head over and over and over again. I got one of those. I got many of those. Do you? What are you hearing? Do you have a condemning voice that you hear over and over again? Now, if the gospel is true, there's, if we saw how clean we absolutely were, if you knew how clean you were, there's nothing that anyone could ever hurl at you that can wipe us out. Amen. Nothing. I like what Charles Spurgeon says. If any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. <laughs> I really resonate with that. We would, be, we would be free from condemning voices. So how does God, accepting God's diagnosis liberate us? First, we'd be free to come out of hiding. Second, we would be free from judging others. Third, we would be free from condemning voices. And when we accept our horrific condition, we are free to accept our hope in the gospel. Becky Pippert tells a story about meeting a young girl who was breaking down, and, and she said, can I get some time with you? And she broke down and shared her story of how she and her fiancé, now husband, were workers, youth workers, at a large conservative church. And they had relations before they got married, and she got pregnant. And because she was overwhelmed with guilt and hypocrisy, and because she could not bear the humiliation. She had an abortion. And she said to Becky, I know that God forgives sins, and I have confessed a thousand times, but I cannot forgive myself. I feel so much shame and sorrow, and I am haunted by this question I ask myself every day. How could I do this? How could I murder an innocent life. Becky took a deep breath and told her, told her the first thing that came to her mind. 
I don't know why you're surprised. I don't know why you're surprised. Reflecting back, Becky would admit that her approach probably wasn't the best counseling method, but she said, I don't know why you're surprised. This isn't the first time your sin has led to death. It's the second. When you look at the cross, all of us show up as crucifiers, religious or non-religious, good or bad, aborters or non-aborters. All of us are responsible for the death of the only innocent who ever lived. Jesus died for all of our sins, past, present, and future. Do you think there are any sins of yours that Jesus didn't have to die for? The very sin of pride that caused you to destroy your child is what killed Christ as well. It does not matter that you weren't there 2,000 years ago. We all sent him there. Luther said that we carry his very nails in our pockets. So if you have done it before, then why couldn't you do it again? Becky waited for a response from this woman. And eventually she said, I came to you saying I have done the worst thing imaginable and you tell me that I have done something even worse than that. Then the woman stopped crying and her face was in awe. She said, if the cross shows me that I am far worse than I have ever imagined, it also shows me that my evil has been absorbed and forgiven. If the worst thing any human can do is to kill God's son, and that can be forgiven, then how can anything else, even my abortion, not be forgiven? Talk about amazing grace. When we accept our horrific condition, we are free to accept our hope in the gospel. This is our Advent hope. Amen.